Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. Each week, we navigate the most important changes that affect pharmacotherapy. Plus, you can earn pharmacy and medicine CE credit. We know you're busy, so let us bring the learning to you. Click on Claim CE Credit in the show notes below. Now let's welcome your host, Jeff Wall, as he discusses this week's clinical practice game changers. Hello and welcome to Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, a professor of pharmacy practice at Drake University and internal medicine clinical pharmacist at Methodist Hospital in Des Moines. Now, welcome to the show. This is the show we try our hardest to give you the latest pharmacotherapy information that will impact your practice, whether you be a provider, whether you be a pharmacist, we really try to give you timely and evidence-based medicine uh, reviews that really help uh, change the way you practice and hopefully help your patients for the better, right? So thanks for listening. If you're a first-time listener, like to welcome you. If you're a longtime listener, thanks for sticking along with us. In any event, if you like what you hear, please head over to where you get your podcast, hit that like button, hit the subscribe button, but also head over to ceimpact.com, which is our producers, and take a look at all the great CE programs they have, including CE for this program, where you just have to listen to the podcast, answer a few simple questions, and you get a couple of, you get a little bit of CE, and that adds up really quick. You'd be kind of surprised, and that's true for both providers and pharmacists. So today, honored to welcome back to the, to the pod my colleague uh, at Drake, Dr. Sarah Grady. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Dr. Wall. I uh, really appreciate Dr. Grady joining us. Dr. Grady is a uh, psychiatric clinical pharmacist at Broadlands Medical Center, and she's also a professor of pharmacy practice at Drake. So uh, she's kind of a veteran like me, I think, in the in, in things at Drake. So we've, we've both been here for a while. Um, and the reason we invited her on uh, today is to get her expert opinion on a paper that actually got quite a bit of lay press. And it and has to do with, with a subject that I've kind of scratched my head about as, as kind of a primary care person for a long, long time, uh, which is pharmacogenesis genomic testing for major depression. Now, we know that for a long time now, probably at least 10 years, it, it's possible for uh, patients to submit a sample, usually a saliva sample, sometimes blood, where they can then send that to a laboratory and they get a long list of their ability to metabolize certain medications. So it basically takes and looks and sees, are they regular metabolizers of the cytochrome P450 system, are they slow metabolizers, are they fast metabolizers, stuff like that. And I can also look at things like serotonin metabolism and serotonin transport genes and things along those lines. And so certainly my physicians for a long time have been getting literally reports as patients get these uh, genomic testing done and they, they try to make it easy for prescribers. They basically have, you know, if, if your patient has, has a depression or you want to prescribe an antidepressant, uh, here's the red, here's the yellow, and here's the green. The green is the one you really want to apply, the yellow with caution, the red you don't want to use. And so I've certainly gotten asked over the years, you know, what's the data that shows that this is actually a good way to go? And so, you know, the date, I think uh, that, that using pharmacogenomic targeted selection of our antidepressants compared to just usual care has really been in small studies over short periods of time. And it's been kind of really plus minus. And so that's where I think the, the prime care study, which was just published about six weeks ago in JAMA, I think finally gives us a lot of big information on this phenomenon. And so uh, that's what we're going to review today. And again, I really appreciate Dr. Grady on board uh, to really give her her expert opinion on this. So again, the price of these tests has really gone down. I mean, I, I've heard that you can get testing, you know, for as little as $49 now, um, if you pay cash. And I've also heard that some insurances are paying for it, though most still don't. So, you know, the, but the point, of course, is, is that these tests classify how an individual metabolites medications. And of course, we're targeting, you know, psychiatric medications here, but, it, you know, this could be for any type of medication. But in all the other thing, it also looks at as 
I said, you know, serotonin uh, metabolism, serotonin transport, which might may pay, play a role in, in that as well. So the theory has always been that if you could do that, if you could get pharmacogenomic testing done before you select your first antidepressant in a patient, you'd be more likely to have them either tolerate it because they're, you know, you're not going to pick a, a, a drug gene, gene interaction medication, or you might have a higher level of remission because you're, you're targeting, you know, again, you know, a, a patient who may be able to, to get decent levels of the antidepressant in their system. And so that's obviously important because, um, you know, unfortunately, you know, despite, uh, you know, 50, 60, 70 years of using antidepressants, we really kind of a lot of times just throw a dart at a board when it comes to, to, to picking antidepressants. You can use symptoms that kind of may, may help you guide your first drug, but then it's basically just kind of, you know, a, a case of seeing do they tolerate it as to improve their symptoms? Where do we go from here? And the, the paper that we're going to review notes that that initial treatment spot response is often only expected in about a third of patients and that uh, every subsequent new antidepressant you try, that uh, remission seems to go down. And so the, again, the prime care study, which was published a, a couple of months ago, I think like six weeks ago anyway, in, in JAMA, and, and we'll actually have a link to that in the show notes, was designed to evaluate clinical outcomes related to pharmacogenomic testing and routine clinical practice. This was a VA study. So um, I had us off to the, to the people, the VA, to try and get this done. Um, it was a pragmatic study design, because it's the only way I think you could ever really get a study like this off the ground. And they really wanted to answer two things. One, would patients and clinicians use this testing to actually select their first antidepressant with potential uh, uh, drug gene interaction? So in other words, would the providers actually listen to this information and, and do something about it? And I think more importantly, the second primary outcome was, uh, would patients who are in the pharmacogenomic guided group have a greater rates of remission than the people who are in usual care? This was, again, a single blind pneumatic study conducted at 22 VA medical centers. So again, my I applaud the VA for, for doing what I think is a very important study in, in this sort of stuff. So the patients uh, who were enrolled in the, in the trial were basically patients who were seen in primary care. So this was not inpatients with depression and stuff like that, or in mental health outpatient settings. They were identified by their treating clinician for their eligibility and their inclusion criteria, including receiving care at a VA medical center, age 18 to 80, with the diagnosis of major depressive disorder, history of at least one treatment episode, and a plan to start a new episode of antidepressant monotherapy. So either switching from a prior treatment or starting just brand new treatment, basically. They excluded patients. Uh, unfortunately, I mean, they had to exclude a lot of patients, and I understand the reason why they did this to really kind of hone in on depression. But unfortunately, a lot of, of comorbid uh, mental health issues, including active substance use disorder, bipolar disorder, uh, psychosis, or uh, antisocial personality disorder, uh, treatments, people, people were already on other medications, including methadone, buprenorphine, or naltrexone, people who are on augmentation treatment for depression, and some other things as well. But that was a kind of the big inclusion-exclusion criteria. After consent, uh, the baseline assessments, and as you might imagine, in a study like this, they did a plethora of survey instruments to try and measure a level of depression, measure the level of anxiety, things along those lines. So they did uh, the PHQ-9 to confirm depression severity. With They had to, had to be in the study, had a required total score of, of greater than nine. Uh, patients were compensated for their research assessments, and clinicians were not. Not surprising, considering it's the VA. Um, then uh, after DNA collection, uh, patients were randomly assigned in a one-to-one -one ratio to receive the pharmacogenomic test when they were available, usually within two to three days after randomization, and that was called the pharmacogenomic guided group, or they didn't get the data until 24 weeks later, which is usual group. So obviously in the 24-week later group, the, their clinicians basically would use usual care to, and their own clinical gestalt to select an antidepressant in these patients. They were uh, The patients were in permuted blocks of four and six and stratified by 
either sites and the clinicians. Uh, they did a, a pretty good job in something I haven't seen in, in a lot of studies where they did a, a kind of survey of the clinicians themselves and were there, were there any interesting uh, things between the patients, uh, the clinicians who enrolled a lot of patients and the clinicians who didn't enroll very many patients, which I thought was kind of interesting. And then basically the, the question was in the, in the pharmacogenomic group, did their clinicians start therapy based on the pharmacogenomic results? Um, but uh, in the usual care, obviously it was usual care. And then all subsequent changes were made by usual care. So if the first antidepressant wasn't tolerated or didn't work, then it went back to just complete usual care by patients. Uh, genomic testing was conducted by myriad pharmaceuticals using their gene site panel. I'm I'm not going to lie, I don't know a ton about it. I know there's several companies out there to do that, but I, I have no reason to believe this would be a good or bad company to, be, to do business with on this sort of thing. They did do a, in this test, they look at four pharmacodynamic gene variants and eight pharmacokinetic gene variants and, and the results they got. And if you actually go to the supplemental information in the study, they actually have a kind of a, a copy of, of the things they were looking at with that, basically. Their assessments included the PHQ-9, as you might imagine, with a range of zero to 27 and higher scores and indicating worse symptoms. They also used the generalized anxiety disorder seven score with higher scores indicating worse symptoms. The Columbia a suicide severity rating scale. They use the Veterans RAN 12-item health survey, which has both a mental component summary and a physical component summary, current alcohol use during a seven-day timeline, a modified version of the National Institute of Drug, Alcohol, Smoking, and Substance Involvement screening test to measure for substance use is either present or absent in the last 30 days. They also looked for average drug reactions, and again, the average drug reactions you would probably expect to see in early treatment of antidepressants, including headache, nausea, vomiting, sexual dysfunction, diarrhea, and Constipation, and they also uh, looked at patients who might have PTSD as well. Basically, they did outcomes at weeks four, eight, 12, 18, and twenty-four after randomization. And taking a look at the statistics, I think they were relatively straightforward. There wasn't anything unusual or strange about the statistics from my read. They wanted to get, it was a big study and I think they needed a big study. So they, they actually had a plan sample size of about 2,000 uh, patients total, about 1,000 per group. And they figured that that would yield an 80% power to see basically a absolute risk improvement or absolute improvement in remission rates, excuse me, of 35% in the pharmacogenomic guided model and 30% in usual care. And then they had a power of 89% for a 25 uh, 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 remission rate percent remission rate in the pharmacogenetic group versus 20 in the usual care, basically. So, and I think again, the statistics were, were relatively straightforward. They used this five percent difference as a what they felt was cl uh, clinically meaningful based on and prior studies. So, like I said, it was interesting. They did a they did a, a participating clinicians characteristics chart. So, and, they, and basically, the uh, the clinicians themselves kind of talked about their ages, how many patients they see, their gender, their race, um, how much time they spent in clinical care. Were they physicians? Were they advanced practitioners or farm bees, because again, this is the VA system. And on the whole, they were, they were, they were similar across the board. There weren't any real big differences between clinicians who didn't have a ton of randomizations into the study and clinicians who did have a ton of randomizations into the study. Uh, then the next chart in the study uh, notes that, again, they did the study between 2017 and 2021. They had 1,944 patients who were randomized. And taking a look at the demographics, this is the VA. So as you might expect, the majority of patients were male, which again, might be a little bit usual, might uh, have something to do with extra validity. Uh, about 67 to 70% of patients uh, uh, were white, about 17-19% uh, of patients were African American, and then, and then other genders as well. As far as financial status, about 13% uh, of patients in both groups uh, said they, that it was difficult for them to make ends meet. For clinical symptoms, uh, the PHQ-9 score was, very, was 
exactly the same between the two groups, 17.5 as, as far as the mean is concerned. Um, and about 30 to 31% of patients were considered treatment refractory. Um, then all the other uh, baseline scoring systems were very similar between the two. About 23% of patients in both groups were, were considered had have at-risk drinking and about 27% uh, of patients in both groups were current uh, tobacco users. So kind of interesting. And so again, the primary, one of the, the first primary outcomes in the study was the out likelihood of patients and, and clinicians using a first drug that did not or have low or no drug gene interaction potential. And as you might, might surmise, that's exactly what they found was that patients who were in the pharmacogenomic guided group were more likely to receive an antidepressant with no potential drug gene interaction, while uh, the usual care group was more likely to receive a drug with mild gene potential drug gene interaction numbers, basically, with an odds ratio of 4.32. And in the end, basically, the estimated risks of none moderate and substantial interactions for the pharmacogenomic guided group was 59% for none, 30% for moderate, and 10.7% for substantial, whereas the usual care group, it was obviously much higher in the uh, moderate and substantial, uh, so 25% with none, 54% with moderate, and 19% uh, with substantial. So not surprisingly, uh, the, the, when they got the pharmacogenomic data, they, they, they did alter their selection for their first um, uh, antidepressant. But then we run into the, I think, the more important primary outcome, which remit multiple weeks. And they did find by week eight that the remission using the PHQ-9 score was actually uh, higher in the pharmacogenomic group compared to usual care at 14.7% versus 11.3%. And that was a, a uh, odds ratio of 1.38 was statistically significant. Unfortunately, by week 24, that same uh, benefit did not, la uh, did not hold. And, and at week 24, 17.2% of patients in the pharmacogenomic guided group uh, were in remission compared to 16 percent in usual care, um, and that did not reach statistical significance. So that's something you want to kind of keep in mind. A response was uh, was basically positive, slightly favoring the genomic uh, guided group in pretty much all timelines. So that's something. Um, and then symptom improvement was uh, slightly higher, again, in, in uh, the, the pharmacogenomic guided group across all timelines. Now, it's important to keep in mind that, they, remember, they were shooting for a 5% absolute risk uh, improvement or absolute improvement in, 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 in treatment with the pharmacogenomic guided groups, and they really never got that. I mean, they, they did it eight weeks and but then and 12 weeks, but after that, it kind of really kind of dropped off. So, you know, in the end, if this study had had another three or 4,000 patients, would they have been able to find a statistically significant difference between the two groups? That's certainly possible, but, but the bottom line was that the early statistical significance was found, but really no difference at 24 weeks, which is interesting. Now, interestingly, when they took a look at a time to starting antidepressants, a much higher percentage of patients in the pharmacogenomic guided group actually started an antidepressant in the first 30 days compared to the usual care group. In fact, the odds ratio of starting an antidepressant was 35% higher um, in, in patients who uh, were in the pharmacogenomic guided group. So one could argue in those first few weeks, was that responsible for the results? I mean, you know, did getting the report jog clinicians to prescribe an antidepressant instead of kind of forgetting about it or, 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 or you know, doing that? So I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, it, it should be noted that many of the patients had none or only moderate predicted drug interactions, even in the usual care group groups. So again, you know, receiving pharmacogenomic testing probably wouldn't have changed any anything. So again, in that background, to keep in mind that, you know, in a lot of these patients, you know, they, uh, once they kind of unblinded them at 24 weeks, it's like, well, the, the antidepressant I was going to prescribe to you in the first place wouldn't have had a big, a big interaction anyway. So, you know, it, it wasn't that big of a deal. That might explain some of the, that they didn't see as big a difference as they were expecting. And, and they actually discussed that some, some in, in the trial. Um, but basically they found that, you know, yes, in, in the 
short term, there may be a slight benefit of pharmacogenomic testing, but it certainly didn't seem to be in the long term. And interestingly, adverse drug reactions didn't change significantly between groups, which I thought was kind of interesting as well. So that's that's kind of what they kind of summarize. So again, I'm going to kind of shut up for a while now. And, and uh, again, we welcome Dr. Grady back onto the program. So, so Sarah, what do you think about this study? I, I, again, this is definitely an area of your expertise. You can kind of give me a, your take on the study, what you felt were the pros and cons, and then what are you going to do with this information? Yeah, so thanks again, Dr. Wall, for having me with you today. I agree with a lot of what you said as far as positives, a nice big study, lots of patients. Um, I like that they looked at uh, clinicians' um, viewpoints as well. The other thing that the study addressed that I liked is that they acknowledged that uh, clinicians do not know a lot about this topic and that this study was able to provide clinicians with uh, information about this topic. So I thought that was a lot of uh, big uh, positives. Uh, the, the drawbacks, and you hit on some of these, this is, this is all VA patients. All right. So this may not uh, apply to everybody. It doesn't certainly apply to my patient population. <laughs> also, they eliminated folks with active substance use disorder. Again, that does not apply to my patient population. It's mainly men. Right. Um, and we right. know that depression is more common in women. Yes. Uh, but I definitely agree with the concept. I've mentioned this on previous podcasts, but I like that they studied people over 65 years of age because right. we do not have enough studies in our older adult population. They did a nice job of laying out the theory, talking about the past trials, but again, uh, not that generalizable uh, of a study. The other thing, and, and I understand why they use the, the PHQ-9, but uh, they didn't really use our gold standard depression scales like the Hamd, Hamilton, yeah, yeah, or the Madras. So that is that is something to keep in mind uh, as well. But again, um, those tests take lots of time and training to do, and, and you know, so I, I get why they looked at the PHQ nine. So I think as people are evaluating the study, it's just important to. Uh, ask yourself, what does my patient population look like? And does it look like this? Again, if it's at the VA, uh, again, I think this definitely obviously applies to the VA, but it may not apply to all situations. All right. um, now, again, I really like that they did this study, uh, even though it doesn't uh, apply to my population, it gives me some good evidence. Um, I think that we should be looking at this testing. Uh, it may not tell us what drug is going to work for someone, but it definitely gives me uh, an idea of how someone can tolerate the medication right. and what kind of doses we're looking at. Because um, honestly, now we, we don't do a lot of pharmacogenomic testing here, unfortunately. And when we start an antidepressant, we don't know if it's going to work. And we don't know what a dose is going to work, and we don't know what side effects somebody have, and if they can tolerate it at all. So something like this can help provide us with some information that oh, um, they are a poor metabolizer. Right. So maybe paroxetine um, isn't the best uh, selection for them. Um, I think it can just save us time. Now as to which test to recommend. Um, I don't know what to tell people. I'm still learning about that uh, myself. Mm -hmm. We have several different different tests available. 
Um, here at Bravons, we're not really doing it on a routine basis, but if someone uh, does it on their own, uh, as you mentioned, some of the cost of the tests has gone down significantly. So there are a few people that can't afford that testing. And if they want to get it done, we do encourage it. And uh, I would say clinicians do use those results to, again, um, give us an idea of what kind of doses we would be looking at with regards to antidepressants, as well as, uh, you, know, uh, you know, which ones they might be able to tolerate. So I, I think that's definitely the benefits. Um, I would love to do a study like this um, in another setting besides the, besides the VA setting. Um, you know, looking at uh, having more women, right. um, uh, loosening up that exclusion criteria just just a little bit so it's more generalizable. As you stated, I understand why they do that. Right. But um, uh, they talked about the practicality of the study, and I agree it's practical. Um, so let's go ahead and make it real world and with real, real world patients, and we can continue to grow our evidence base right. um, in this area. So it sounds to me like like your tar your gestalt on this is that it may not actually help us all that much with 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 remission or response rates, but definitely would help more with with uh, with tolerability. So if you knew someone, for example, like you said, was a poor metabolizer of the two D six system, that yeah, proxene is probably not the drug for them, right? You know, so something along those lines is what you're saying. Yes, at this point in time, okay, uh, with enough. the with the information that we have and. Uh, I think the other thing to factor in is uh, with uh, mental health issues in general, there's just so many other factors to look at besides uh, drug response. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and, and I mean, one of the things, one of the things I always tell, you know, my, my students when we talk about, you know, depression is that, you know, it, you know, pharmacotherapy is just one piece of the puzzle, right? And it's an important piece, certainly, but, 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 but you can't, you know, you've really got to get them into counseling. You really got to get to take a look at their other comorbid factors and treat them or you're really going to struggle for for you know you know remission with any antidepressant doesn't matter you know really what it is so yeah i mean i, I completely agree with you that that's a key piece is i think yeah, if you know we all want a you know kind of a golden pill that's just going to fix everything and and uh, you know i'm sure in your world way more than mine um you you, you <laughs> see where that that just uh, isn't isn't the case so um i was going to ask a little bit while while i got you and we got an you know an expert in the house you know kind of a, a sideways uh, subject that's close to pharmacogenomic testing of course is patients with L-methyl folate deficiency, because that's kind of like a genetic problem, right? And for those uh, listeners who, who, who may not be familiar with this, folic acid in its biologically active form, L-methyl folate has been, has been studied actually for the treatment of depression. Uh, the reason why is that uh, about 10% of patients with major depressive disorder may actually have a genetic poly polymorphism where they have low brain levels of L-methylfolate because L-methylfolate is the form of folic acid that crosses the blood-brain barrier. And uh, they have, like I said, about 10% of patients with major depressive disorder have a genetic polymorphism, which doesn't allow production of L-methylfolate. And there's now been several small, but I think fairly well done randomized controlled trials that suggest that if you can target these patients, that exogenous L-methylfolate, which is actually a medical food, uh, you can actually buy it at, at health food stores, uh, may be helpful in these patients. So I was going to, you know, before we got, I mean, I, we, it's, it's hard to line up our, our schedule. So I wanted, before I got your, your expertise to leave, I wanted to ask you what you thought about that. Yeah, so I'm, I'm in agreement. I've, I've looked at those studies as well. And we, um, it kind of de depends on the psychiatrist or the psych provider that I'm working with. But uh, we have definitely utilized L-methylfolate uh, again um, 
when people can afford it, when their budget allows. Um, yeah, we do. We do definitely in, encourage that uh, you, for sure. Have you actually like done the test to see if they're if they're if they have a genetic polymorphism, or you just say, well, you have resistant depression. About ten percent of patients respond to this. If you can afford it, let's go for it because it shouldn't have any side effects because it's a food. You know. Yep, I, I would say the the latter. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I've heard through the grapevine that again, not surprisingly, insurance companies aren't going to pay for the for the test for this. So you know, and and so it doesn't surprise me that it would probably be just cheaper to say, look, you know, let's give it a shot and just see if it improves things. I mean, what do you got to lose? It's just a food, you know. So as long as you can afford it, you're good to go. So yeah, I I just thought that was fascinating. And and you know, again, you know, it, it, we don't have huge, gigantic, randomized control trials, but several, I think, well done trials suggest that it that that the benefit far outweighs the risk if you can target these patients. So, so any last words, Sarah, you know, you're, you're, you're not uh, opposed to genomic testing, but your impact on remission rates may be overshadowed by its impact on tolerability. Yes. Uh, so I'm, I'm definitely for uh, the testing. Um, I'm definitely for further uh, studies like this in, um, again, non, maybe non-VA populations. Right. Um, kind of working with the study design, like both you and I had mentioned. And at this point in time, uh, again, I think its biggest utility might be tolerability uh, until we know more. Right. right. And again, that would be the, the value of, of continuing to, to study this. But um, any tool that we have to save lives um, and save time and save suffering for people at this point, I'm all for. Oh, absolutely. I agree. And, you know, I mean, you know, you know, sites, you know, sites, uh, mental health providers always, uh, have, you know, I, I always say that they're practicing with one hand tied behind their back because unfortunately they don't have a lab. They can just, you know, Hey, I can measure this lab and see how you're doing, or I can measure your blood pressure and see how you're doing. You, you know, we don't have anything really objective. We just have what the patient says. And if they're feeling better then they're feeling better. And, and, and you're right. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's why when patients come into the, to my medicine service and they're on, you know, what sometimes my residents kind of feels kind of this kind of weird combination of antipsychotics and, and antidepressants like, gee, this is really strange. And, you know, I'm like, Hey, if this is what works for them, this is what works. <laughs> I wouldn't mess with it for all the tea in China because, you know, it took, it took probably years of trial and error to, to find a combination of medications that allows this patient to function and doesn't cause too many side effects. And we shouldn't mess with that in the inpatient realm. So that's kind of my feel. So Sarah, thank you so much for, for taking the time to join us. Again, as always, we really appreciate your expertise. Um, again, uh, you know, hopefully we, if when we have another uh, big mental health topic, if we can invite you back on board, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Have a good day. You too. So that's it for this uh, episode of Game Changers. Again, thanks for listening. Hit that like and uh, subscribe button. Head over to CE Impact. See if you can uh, help us keep the lights on by signing up for some CE. Uh, we will see you next week. But until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening in. Claim your CE credit by clicking on the link in the show notes. And check out CE Impact's other education at ceimpact.com, where we curate the most important information in pharmacy and medicine to deliver straight to you. Join today to connect your learning to practice.